Ideas matter. Ideas matter. This is Dialogue. Hello and welcome to Dialogue. A UN official has said that almost 25,000 Palestinians have reportedly been killed during the ongoing Israel and Hamas conflict in Gaza and the majority have been women and children. In related development, EU foreign policy chief Joseph Burrell has accused Israel of financing Hamas in an attempt to weaken the Palestinian Authority, adding that only a two-state solution imposed from the outside would bring peace between the two sides. At the same time, multiple strikes and attacks took place throughout the region over the past weeks. As international pressure seems to be mounting, is Israel to end its military operation in Gaza anytime soon? Are we witnessing the conflict spilling over into the rest of the region? And is a two-state solution still a possibility or completely off the table? Joining me today, uh, Dr. Sarah Yao Hersham, visiting professor at the University of Haifa and a Tangen senior fellow of Taiher Institute and Kawa Hassan, non-resident fellow in MENA program of Stimson Center and Professor Yossi Mackenberg, associate fellow in MENA program of Chatham House. Welcome to Dialogue. Uh, so, Dr. Hasham, I will start with you. You know, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu recently said that, you know, as Israel's uh, major military goals haven't been achieved yet, the fight against Hamas is likely to continue until 2025. But will Israel ever achieve its goals in Gaza, you know, that includes destroying the Hamas? Benjamin Netanyahu has every reason to want the war between Israel and, and Gaza to continue or between Israel and Hamas to continue only because he knows that the moment the emergency crisis of the war ends, so will his position in the prime ministership. And we see a bit of a moving target now as more and more progress, frankly, has been made in destroying Hamas infrastructure and decapitating Hamas leadership of what the end goal of the Israeli operations will be. Some of his colleagues uh, over the weekend signaled that there were competing goals that were at odds with each other. One was the destruction of Hamas and the other would be rescuing the hostages, the 130 hostages that are still being held in Hamas captivity, including you know infants and elderly, elderly uh, men and women. So I think Netanyahu needs to make a strong and brave decision, which is what are the most proximate and realistic war aims that can be achieved? also without losing international and uh, particularly American support, which seems to be dwindling for this critical and intensive phase of the war. Whether the hostages can indeed be rescued or this will require some kind of comprehensive hostage release deal that will be that will require a cessation or at least a pause of the hostilities. Um, and really what the future of Israel's involvement will be in Gaza. Will there be an occupation of Gaza following the military offensive or will we be transitioning to some other kind of arrangement? But certainly Netanyahu has reasons not to want to answer these questions too quickly because he knows that his uh, political career hangs in the balance. Uh, okay, can you talk more a little bit about that, you know, like uh, Netanyahu's uh, political career, that because, uh, you know, his fight against Hamas is popular and he needs that kind of support? What's the well, his fight against Hamas has been broadly popular. I mean, this has been seen as a as a war to restore national deterrence and certainly a necessity after the southern communities of Israel were virtually overrun by Hamas uh, by Hamas terrorists on 10/7. 
But we've now reached a phase of the war where the main stated goals, which were removing Hamas material, you know, rockets and tunnels and decapitating Hamas leadership has, you know, been accomplished to a substantial, if not a complete degree. So the original war aims that Netanyahu and the war cabinet stated have now been you know, at least somewhat achieved. The question I think that the Israeli public is now most concerned about is what is going to happen to the hostages because mm-hmm. we've been over 50 days since a, since a, another tranche of hostage release. And how long can this war really go on? His unpo- his popularity has dwindled to its lowest number ever. And most Israelis, if you know, were asked today, would like to go to new elections. Yeah, from outside, we see that the UN has reported like, uh, you know, 25,000 civilian Palestinians uh, were killed. So Anna here, you know, with the majority of those uh, being killed are women and children. Obviously, there's a, that's a mounting pressure in that respect. So is that going to have any impact? Uh, in terms of uh, affecting the, uh, the ongoing conflict there, you know, or whether there will be some pressure to end the conflict as soon as possible? Well, what's happening is you're seeing a very sharp division between the, the developed countries, not all, but those that are backing Israel and the rest of the world. Uh, you, all you have to do is read through the condemnations that were given country by country to these UN resolutions, and you'll see quite clearly that the world is not in favor of these women and children being killed. They understand Uh, Hamas is a terrorist organization. They committed a terrorist act that does not justify the killing of 25,000 people, most of whom are women and children, because you want to get at the bad actors. That's horrendous. It's the kind of thing that, uh, you know, Israel uh, was oppressed during the Second World War, and now they've become the oppressor. And that is in the eyes of most of the world. And I'm talking about landmass, peoples, markets, production, you name it. Well, European Union foreign policy chief uh, Joseph Burrow, as we uh, reported earlier, said that you know, the, the, the way Israel is carrying out its war against Hamas in the Gaza Strip is, uh, quote, seeding hate for generations, end quote. Also, what he said is, you know, we have in mind what Hamas is, what Hamas has done, and certainly we reject and we condemn. But the peace and stability cannot be built only by military means and not in this particular way of using military means. So, Mr. Hassan, what's the message here? Are we seeing mounting pressure from the EU here? There's definitely a mounting pressure on on Israel, and I agree also with the former uh, uh, speaker that indeed, you know, the world by and large is really appalled by what's going on in Gaza. You know, uh, the the, the horrible terrorist attack of 7th of October doesn't justify, you know, the killing of tens of thousands of of civilians in Gaza, you know, uh, mostly women and children. So there is definitely here in the, you know, in the European Union, in Europe in general, a growing popular you know, uh, protest, but also at the level of, of governments and civil society. But the issue with EU, as you may know, is always it's EU is, is divided. You know, it needs to arrive at a consensus to, do, you know, to come up with a, a, a credible policy. And uh, we are not there yet, but definitely there is a growing pressure and also growing condemnation for uh, for the way you know israel is is conducting its um, you know its, its war in gaza in the european union well beyond that uh, it seems uh, you know uh, professor 
Mackelberg have uh, uh, here with us. You know, the Barrow also openly criticized uh, Israel uh, that Hamas has been financed by the Israeli government to try to undermine the Palestinian Authority of Fatah. You know, this idea has been floating for some time, but uh, this is probably the first time a senior official uh, in the position as high as the Barrow is, you know, raising such an issue. What's the impact? You know, why would Brown make these comments now? Well, probably should have made these comments uh, long before, as I think the world should have been appalled by the conditions in Gaza before uh, 7th of October. Maybe if we actually addressed all of this issue before 7th of October, we would not have been in this situation. But here we are, we are in this situation and we need to address it. And uh, the reality is, Borel is, is, is absolutely right. Netanyahu's paradigm of divide and rule between the Fatah and the Hamas and between the West Bank in Gaza, all aimed at preventing a two-state solution from ever becoming a reality, preventing an independent Palestinian state from having happening, a collapse in a matter of few hours on, on October 7th. Now we need actually with, to deal with the, the repercussions of what happened on 7 October in the last, uh, in the last few months, as the previous speakers uh, mentioned. It's completely unacceptable the way that Israel conducts the war in Gaza. Yes, Hamas is, is a terrorist uh, organization, yet it's also a political organization. It's also an ideology and political movement and ideology you encounter with more attractive political movement and ideology. And that's probably what we should, should do now, including for the European Union. It's not only enough uh, to criticize. It's not enough, you know, Borrell is not an observer. He's a politician. And as a politician, he needs to come with policies. So the EU should come with policies. Here we in the UK, we should come with policies. And above all, we need to see the US, Israel, and the Palestinians come with policies, which shows that they draw the right lessons from the last three and a half months. Uh, Dr. Sarah Hasham, is this accusation based on evidence or is it true? And um, if it's true, what is the purpose or what is the goal of Israeli government by, say, financing Hamas? Well, look, first of all, we, we should be clear that, that uh, it's something of a canard that was suggested that Israel was directly financing Hamas. The truth was that Israel was turning a blind eye as Qatar and other countries were providing essentially suitcases full of, you know, cash and being brought into being brought into the Gaza Strip. So they were very, very knowledgeable of the fact that Hamas was receiving outside funding. Um, and Israel, of course, does pay certain kinds of remittances for services um, and taxes that are um, that the that Palestinians um, you know, Palestinians are responsible to the state of Israel, but it, it wasn't as if, you know, the, uh, Netanyahu was personally handing off a, you know, a suitcase of cash to Yahya Sinwar. So we need to be a bit careful about how we describe this. But certainly there was uh, an effort by Netanyahu, I think, uh, to divide and conquer, as Professor Michael Bolger suggested. And further, that Netanyahu, I think, told, and, you know, we, we must say the entire military and intelligence establishment alongside Netanyahu seemed to misunderstand the intentions of Hamas, that they were not modifying their positions in any certain way or that the uh, financing or general, uh, you know, uh, re uh, reproachment or, you know, cease temporary ceasefires that were happening indicated some kind of ideological 
moderation. Then, in fact, it was you know a long-term game of even preparing for 10-7, which we know was in the works for you know several years before the attack actually occurred. But I think we should also point to the fact that um, you know Palestinian agency is lacking in this discussion, which is that the Palestinian Authority and Hamas also were unable to unify during this period of time. They had several talks that broke down over the course of the last you know five years alone, and this is relevant also to understanding why um, this divide and conquer method works so well is because they also were unwilling or unable to reach some kind of internal Palestinian agreement to move the Palestinian national cause forward um, on a diplomatic or other plane. Uh, so Mr. Hassan, I mean, what, what's your take of uh, Browse remarks? Uh, is this uh, a change of attitudes simply to uh, probably creating pressure on uh, Israelis, on Netanyahu, uh, for the purpose of uh, ending the uh, conflict over there? Or is it uh, an accusation or serious accusation of like, uh, oh, um, you know, it's uh, Israel or it's the Israeli government to blame for what is happening? I think primarily is really, um, it signals the frustration of Borel and EU, uh, you know, and, and also the, the inaction of EU, the absence of EU uh, since the start of the war, you know, in October. And for the reasons I said, you know, that EU is, is divided, is weak, it has lost really much of its credibility in the region, but still EU can play a very a good role, be a force for good in the region. And I think uh, particularly because of the growing, you know, popular pressure to end the war in Gaza, but also because of the, the role of EU as one of the biggest donors to support reconstruction along with other countries from the Arab Gulf countries, you know, post-war in, in Gaza. So um, I think to me, it's a signal of frustration, but also to now say to Israel that, yes, you have right to, you know, respond to the terror attack of October the 7th, but Israel and particularly Netanyahu played a role you know, we could differ about how that role, how deep that role was in, in influential, but I think did play a role in strengthening Hamas at the expense of the Palestinian Authority, basically by applying, you know, the basic rule of divide and rule. But but also in the end, Israel failed. In, you know, October seventh was primarily an intelligence failure for Israel to reading the long-term strategy of Hamas, despite their, their you know, their, their information and intelligence on, on the, the, the inner working of Hamas. Well, uh, Anna, you know, if you look at the responses now or remarks from governments, uh, I mean, even from Western uh, countries, European countries, uh, including Brown, of course, and now uh, there are, you know, scholars are calling for Biden, the U.S. president, to cut Netanyahu loose. So are you seeing the dwindling support for Netanyahu or for Israel uh, in terms of their military operation in Gaza here? Well, I think you have to separate Israel from Netanyahu. Netanyahu, I would agree with Sarah, is an opportunist. Uh, he is, he is in fact, removed from office. Uh, there's a good chance he'll go to jail. Uh, he's addicted to the power. He has shown that he will do almost anything. He reviled against the very groups of people he now cooperates with in his government. But, you know, you, you have to put this in context. This, this began, you know, in the 1800s as a, an experiment by the British. Uh, to insert one group of people into another area, and it was bound to not go well. And since that time, you just have these cycles of, of war, violence, displacement, anger, and it continues. Terrorism uh, is the logical outcome. I'm not condoning it, I'm condemning it. 
But I'm telling you, if you keep pushing somebody, they will do extreme things uh, in defense of what they think is their country. And unfortunately, as uh, some of my guests have pointed out, you can maybe kill the man, but you're not going to kill the idea. Just think about it this way. 2.4 million people, half of them children under 18. How easy is it going to be to radicalize them, having them having seen tens of thousands of people killed, many of them they know, uh, many injured. Uh, the next grouping of whatever it is, Hamas or whatever radical group is out there, is going to be instead of 30 or 40,000, it's going to be 300 or 400,000. This mm -hmm. kind of cycle of violence is not being addressed. Uh, it was by one of my colleagues. But the fact is, this is not the end of this. And this idea that somehow having a ceasefire is going to be make everything okay isn't. This has uh, very, very deep roots. These people are, are wedded to their ideas. On one hand, you have settlers, I mean, you have Palestinians who you know date back hundreds and hundreds of years uh, to pieces of land where their uh, relatives were growing uh, whatever they were doing, vines or, or crops. On the other side, you have uh, settlers who are as equally extreme as Hamas who are coming in and pushing these people out. So until these groups are removed from power and put where they should be on the fringes or you know put to the side, and the middle comes forward and says, we want a solution that brings peace, not just to this generation, but to future generations, you're not going to have anything, not a two-state solution, just a continuum of war. Well, speak of the two-state solution, I mean, uh, speak of addressing this issue long-term. Professor Meckenberg, of course, you know, Joseph Bra also talked about this two-state solution, you know, uh, imposing it from outside. Obviously, he's referring to, like, uh, it seems it's not working uh, by the two sides directly involved. Then what's your comments, like, from outside, by whom, from where? I mean, uh, what about the implementation? How to impose this uh, two-state solution from outside? It's not just about imposing it. It's also actually ensuring that both Israelis and Palestinians bind to this, the, 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 this idea, at least a critical mass there. And I think we should, we should work before the technicalities of a two-state solution. We need to talk about the values of two-state solution. The idea that everyone, Israelis and Palestinians, enjoy the same rights, the same political rights, the same human rights, the same civil rights, the, the, the right of both for self-determination, dealing with Jerusalem as the, as, as the capital of both, or so recognition in their sovereignty and, and the right to have capital. And, and of course, addressing the, the, the refugees issue. And then we are accepting that all these values of equality, of rights for everyone, from this, then we can look for one solution or another. Now, the Oslo Agreement envisaged a peace based on separation as a result of Israel expanding settlements now between East Jerusalem and the West Bank, there are 700,000. It makes kind of separation in the way that Oslo envisaged almost impossible. So we need to look into different modalities of, of a two-state solution. One idea that is, is floating, and I think there is a lot in it, is, is the idea of an, an Israeli-Palestinian confederation, which, which is basically a two-state solution in a one-state reality but accepting, again, the same values of rights. But again, I think what the international community should do is actively encourage both sides to understand that this is the best in their own interest. 
Dr. Sarah Hasham, you know, of course, the focus is now is on the Netanyahu government, you know, who uh, basically refused to accept this two-state solution. But on the other side, and people often also point out the Palestinians, probably the majority, they neither won't, uh, you know, will accept this uh, two-state solution. Is that the case? Um, I think that there was a video that was just published of Khaled Mashal speaking openly about his rejection of the two-state solution this week. Uh, so I think he and Netanyahu, who may not be the leaders in charge of either of their respective national movements, but in their case, right now they are, and both of them um, for the long term have rejected a two-state solution. We should say that Netanyahu's remarks last week were, I think, uh, taken a bit out of context when he was speaking about control over the Jordan Valley Rift, but certainly there is unlikely to be progress from either of these uh, either of these leaders. So we'll have to wait for another another you know turn of elections in Israel certainly. But amongst the Palestinians, a new generation of leadership or new kinds of leaders who may emerge from these events to determine a path forward. But I do think that an imposition of a plan from outside, which was just discussed, where neither Israelis nor Palestinians are directly engaged in the first, at least the very you know initial phases of um, a discussion about a two-state solution, is just uh, dead on arrival. Because the concept that uh, that uh, other, particularly Arab partners, will decide on behalf of Israelis and Palestinians what their future will look like, I think is unsustainable for either you know for either community. These are national movements, and they want to have a say in their own national affairs. So um, I don't know who, what leaders will be capable of taking uh, both Israel and Palestine down a road towards a two-state solution, but I don't think it can come from um, outside of their communities. Mr. Hassan, is it still a viable option, you know, two-state solution? And also we are heard uh, hearing like uh, some of the Arab states basically conditioning their normalization of relationship with Israel on these two-state solutions. How likely is that? Well, I think, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the events since uh, October 7th uh, have shown that you know, Oslo Accord has failed. Normalization between Arab countries and Israel without, you know, bringing in the Palestinian issue and be part of the, uh, you know, an, a kind of an overall solution also failed. So as it stands right now, there is no alternative to a two-state solution. Maybe a two-state solution in a, you know, in a you know, one-state reality like Confederation, also a very interesting idea. But as it stands right now, and given the, the carnage that has been, you know, created and the havoc in Gaza, but also, you know, uh, the impact of 7th October on the Israeli society, I don't see any other alternative other than a two-state solution, even, even if it's a temporary, you know, arrangement. So I think that is also the, you know, that's, um, that's recognized also by Arab countries. And also, you know, there is, there used to be an Arab initiative from 2002, initiated by the Arab League, you know, led by Saudi Arabia. Unfortunately, at the time, you know, it was rejected by Israel. I think that could be revisited. You know, Saudi Arabia and other countries are ready to normalize with Israel, provided also a Palestinian state you know, will be established a viable Palestinian state, not only a nominal Palestinian state, you know. In conclusion, I think, you know, at this stage, I don't see any other alternative to a two-state, you know, solution, provided there is international will to push that. But also, as, you know, um, some of my colleagues said, we should create the conditions for that, both in Israel and in in Palestine, you know, so that, you know, both societies 
and, and leadership will accept it. Well, Anna, let's look at the issue beyond the Palestine-Israeli conflicts here. Of course, we are seeing, you know, strikes, attacks, you know, Red Sea and also Iranian uh, attacks uh, in, in different countries, Iraq, Syria and uh, Pakistan. And recently, there's a, a ballistic missile attack on the base, uh, U.S. military base in Iraq. And the U.S. is talking about, uh, you know, basically retaliation. Are we seeing spillover effects of the Gaza conflict? And how serious is it? Well, it's very serious. I mean, Hamas lit the fuse. They understood that by uh, creating this terrorist attack, they would put everything on pause, which is what they wanted. They did not want to have a normalization or a relations between the other Arab states and Israel. Uh, they've successfully done that. Now you see Hezbollah. Uh, they want to also be on this kind of uh, tip of the spear in terms of rejecting U.S. and Israel. Now, what do they all have in common? They're backed by Iran. So, you know, at this point, you have a large regional player, Iran, which has many, many different forms, and both Shia and Sunni sides. What they have in common is they're all angry, and they all want to change things, and they're willing to use violence to do it. And what do you have on the U.S. side? A country that believes that bullets and bombs solves everything, although it hasn't to date. They're still not willing to give up trying. Well, uh, Professor Merkenberg, uh, you know, should we be concerned with, uh, you know, people have talked about a uh, region-wide war. Uh, should we be concerned with that kind of possibility or likelihood even? I think we should be very concerned because in a way we are already in the midst of some level of, of regional conflict. When you have missile flying from by the Houthis in, in, in Yemen and, 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 and blocking or slowing down uh, shipping in 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 the Red Sea, uh, Hezbollah in Israel and, and Israel in Syria and American attack in 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 Damascus and attacks in Iraq. This is already on some level we are in the midst of such conflict. The real danger, and, and not to mention also rivalries that emerge in in between Iran and, and Pakistan. So we should be worried. I think generally it shows the failure of the collective security, global collective security, as was formed after 1945. We need to readdress it. Two, we are not actually addressing, we, we are not addressing root causes of conflict. And when something happens, it lets actually, it, it pushes to the surface other conflict within within the region, as it happens in other parts of, parts of the world. So this is source of concern. What is important now is to diffuse. And one of the first uh, uh, steps towards diffusing it is a, is, is a ceasefire in Gaza. But this is not going to resol resolve all the other issues unless we actually attend to them. With that, we come to the end of uh, today's show. Again, a big thank you to our guests. I'm Xu Qinduo. See you next time. Dive into news like never before with Deep Dive, the podcast from CGTN Radio. Join our global reporters for captivating stories and thought-provoking conversations. Search Deep Dive on your favorite podcast platforms and get ready to dive in. Sideline Story brings you all things sports-related. The hottest topics, latest events, juiciest stories, all with a very personal take. Subscribe to Sideline Story Podcast for heated sports discussions covering events that are happening in China and around the world.